Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Did old man winter hit the snooze button? Also, Toronto police get it wrong. A pricey trip for the PM. Strep A cases are spiking, improving EV batteries, and the bill squished the fish again. The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Did old man winter hit the snooze button? I mean, really, we, we received a little bit of snow on Saturday in Hamilton. Not much any time before that. What took so long and what should we expect from here on in? Ross Hall is a meteorologist with Global News and joins us here on GMH on 900 CHML. Ross, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Great to be with you. Where has winter been? <laughs> well, a lot of people have been asking me that. Uh, <laughs> I think, you know, the, the snow this weekend was a bit of a reminder that we're actually in January, but uh, December's warmth was very impressive. <laughs> Because of its scale, especially the fact that much of the country was above average, some areas reaching the warmest December on record. And with that mild weather, of course, there's been the lack of snow, which has impacted recreational activities. There's a concern for agriculture, too, who depend on that snowpack for moisture. Uh, so winter really has been on pause. Uh, we are starting to see, though, some changes, some signs that uh, that old friend of ours, the uh, polar vortex, I'm sure you recall uh, talking about that at times over the last few years. Well, we're starting to see that cold air, Arctic air is going to once again uh, be playing a role in our in our weather story. And that can lead to uh, significant storms. Uh, so that's that's sort of what we're looking at. I think winter is going to start to make a return over the next couple of weeks. OK, we also know a winter storm is approaching and uh, we're kind of a little uh, you know, wondering what what we're going to get in terms of snow and rain and the mix and when it's all going to happen. What can you tell us? Yeah, it's going to be one of those messy systems. I don't expect this to be a significant snowfall event for the greater Hamilton area, uh, for much of the Golden Horseshoe. Uh, if you're looking for significant snow, it'll be where many areas do need it. Uh, well, at least in terms of some of the ski resorts uh, north of our area. This is going to start on Tuesday morning. The latter half of your morning commute will likely uh, start to experience some wet snow. I think in terms of the accumulation for Hamilton uh, and around Niagara, much of the Golden Horseshoe, two to five centimeters at most. Then we start to see that messy transition to rain as we move into the afternoon. And so there is the possibility for a lot of uh, pooling on roadways. I don't think this is going to be a major flooding event. In terms of total precipitation, it'll likely be 20 to 30 millimeters uh, by Wednesday morning. And the other aspect of this Texas low as it moves into the Great Lakes, Rick, uh, will be the strong winds. We're looking at gusts near 60 kilometers per hour, really peaking through the afternoon and evening hours tomorrow. Could be some power outages around Niagara, especially, I think, off the shores there of Lake Ontario, uh, the western shores of Lake Ontario, is where we'll likely see some of the stronger winds or likely will be some wind warnings gusts near 100 kilometers per hour. So it's going to be stormy. And, and that's, again, a part of this change. It's, it was relatively quiet over the holidays. We didn't even experience very many storms. Well, that's starting to change as soon as tomorrow. And there's another big one possibly uh, next weekend. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Ross Hall, meteorologist with Global News. We're talking about the uh, arrival of winter, at least wintry weather, and we'll get uh, a dose of that tomorrow over the next uh, 24, 48 hours. The, the normal temp for this time of the year, the high, minus two. We're still above that with the, the snow and the rain that's going to be arriving. Um, in terms of driving conditions, maybe not treacherous. If it was below zero, it might be a different story. Yeah, exactly. So with this system, temperatures are going to be 
just around the freezing mark as the precipitation moves into tomorrow morning. So that's why we think there could be some wet snow mixed in with this, but uh, temperatures will start to rise. And then uh, by the afternoon, this is going to be, well, if it is snow, wet snow, but likely rain around Hamilton. Um, uh, what we're looking at, though, more longer range is uh, temperatures starting to drop. I mentioned the polar vortex earlier. That's basically an area of very cold air that oftentimes hangs out uh, in the Arctic or north of there. Well, lobes of that Arctic air start to drip south sometimes. And we're starting to see indications that will certainly be happening across the prairies in the coming days. And we think some of that colder air is going to start to make its way towards the Great Lakes. Now, if that interacts with some moisture with another Texas low that moves in this upcoming weekend, that's when we could in, be in for a significant winter storm. Not yet certain, but I would definitely, if you have plans, travel plans Friday into Saturday this upcoming weekend, uh, that's the one to really watch. This system will, of course, be a nuisance for people trying to get around and so on, uh, but it's when you really get that cold air uh, into these systems that can really energize them, and that's what I'm concerned about uh, as we head into this weekend. So when you say significant, are you anticipating significant snowfall? Well, Yes. And uh, well, that's one of those, those tough questions, Rick. <laughs> I, I don't want to be, I don't want to, it's too early to, to throw out amounts because I know that can scare people. But um, I, you know, some models, we look at these computer models to, to, to see how uh, various models are dealing with systems. And some models are, are putting out 30 plus centimeters with this event. Some aren't uh, as high with the snowfall and showing a bit more mixing. So over the next few days, certainly by by mid this week, uh, we'll, we'll have a better handle on this system, uh, the next system this weekend. But first, we're going to obviously have to deal with uh, some of the messy messy uh, aspects of this, uh, this first system that's going to move through beginning uh, tomorrow morning into early Wednesday. And, and once the significant system arrives, is that going to be kind of the cue to, okay, this is the rest of the winter? What should we expect from here on in? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I, I think that uh, we did look, when we were looking ahead to this season, this winter season, we knew that there was the possibility of some periods of colder weather. And we did think that that was going to be in January. So that is very much what we're looking at right now in terms of the next couple of weeks, likely taking us towards the end of January. Now, as we move into February, I, I, there likely will be a pullback of that Arctic air. We could get back into above average temperatures and uh, not as warm as it was in December. That is that that was record breaking and an anomaly, uh, but it's not to say that if we do get into this you know stormy cold period over the next few weeks that it's going to lock in for February or March uh, because of that El Nino that continues to play a role uh, with our jet stream and, and various patterns across uh, the continent. Always great talking weather with Ross Hall, Global News meteorologist. Ross, thanks for the time this morning. Thank you. Have a great day. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Toronto police have some serious egg on their face. I mean, this is a Western omelette. So much so that the chief has now come out with an apology. If you miss it over the weekend, and this all went down as the Israel-Hamas war entered its fourth month today. Large-scale protests are continuing in Toronto, including one that blocked off a major intersection, and it has been blocking off major intersections on a weekly basis. The latest one happened over the weekend on the Avenue Road 401 overpass. And viral video footage from this protest is the 
talk of the town. It, it went viral on social media, like wildfire, racking up more than a million views in less than a day. And critics, after watching this video clip, absolutely lambasting police, accusing officers of providing anti-Israel protesters with refreshments as they blocked off this major road in a predominantly Jewish neighborhood. The clip in question shows a smiling Toronto police officer handing a box of Tim Hortons coffee along with a stack of cups to a smiling pro-Palestinian demonstrator. Have a listen. How did you get coffee from the police? Uh, one of the police, someone, came, someone has brought it for us, but the police won't let them in. So the police are now becoming our little messengers. I don't know. I have no idea what's going on. We're, up, we're on the bridge. They're not letting anyone else come on. Which makes no sense. Because if we're already on the bridge, how is there a public safety issue? Now, I should mention the coffee was not gifted to the protesters by police. Police didn't go out and buy coffee for these protesters. It was passed along from someone who could not enter the protest zone because police were blocking it off. But still, but still, if you're one of the police officers who are blocking off protesters and some protester, I don't care what the cause is, says, hey, can you deliver the coffee to our friends on the other side? The, the answer is no. I'm sorry, no. Other clips from this protest on Saturday show police being cordial but firm with protesters who had strayed from the area designated for the event. And another viral video posted to social media from the pro-Palestinian protest, again on Avenue Road on the 401 overpass, left many viewers scratching their heads when one of the protesters asked police to provide a portable washroom. Do you have a washroom inside the bus? No. Can you provide for a portable washroom instead? It's a human right. I need to go to pee. Okay, you can go. It's your decision to pee. No, I'm not going to leave. I want to stay here. You can stay here. These are the decisions this is, you make. Who, who made a decision that if we cannot come back? You need I don't want to go. This is, the, this is what I want to do. This is his okay, right. You can, can be here. But I, I want to go back pee. The washroom too. Okay, then because of high diabetes. Okay. So, you, you give me a ticket for going to the bushes and relieve myself? Are you going to give me a ticket if I release myself on the, on the, by the trees? Will I give you a ticket huh. for using the bathroom outside where you should not? He'll try to hide himself in the bushes. That's something that you, I'm, I'm going to be charged for, for, for what? You know it's against I need the to, law I, to I have that. a diabetes. Okay, sir, I need go to, to the it's your decision, just like any other time, if you have to use the bathroom, you go on your own right and your own choice, okay? But you can provide us with a portable washroom. I cannot provide you with the why not? You got tons of money. I am, sir. But you're here for the safety to ensure. You're that not here for my safety. Okay. That's why I'm why here. Why not provide you with a? Can you use the washroom in your bus? There's sir. No okay, come with me. There's no bus. There's no washroom. There's no washroom inside. So you heard in the clip, you know, this is my constitutional right. And while the United Nations has recognized sanitation as a human right, the right to sanitation, having a clean and safe toilet facility, 
when you are blocking a road, do you not kind of wave that? <laughs> Listen, he could have gone pee right in the bushes, right on the road if he wanted to. That was the decision that he had to make that the officer clearly outlined. And I think rightfully so. The officer's not going to make that decision for him, but that individual knows that it is against the law to urinate or defecate in public. By the way, Avenue Road has since reopened, and the police chief in Toronto has apologized in a statement for the concern and confusion caused by one particular interaction between officers and a person, that being the coffee-sharing incident. And there was also a pro-Palestinian protest in Nathan Phillips Square yesterday during Toronto Mayor Olivia Chow's skating party in which her speech was interrupted a bunch of times by protesters with megaphones waving Palestinian flags. And after she exited the rink, demonstrators could be heard, heard saying to, to skaters, while you're skating, bombs are dropping. And while that is accurate, what is also accurate is while they are protesting, bombs are dropping. Yesterday marked the three-month anniversary of the Hamas terror attack on Israel, and the war continues. Uh, this, this won't be the last of it, we know. And you know. And I implore police, and I'm a big supporter of police, but I implore police to use caution, but no, no passing of coffee any longer. Next thing we know, they're going to be blowing up bouncy castles. It's a big no-no. Can't go there. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his family recently vacationed in Jamaica at a family friend's posh resort. Oh, the photos look so good. Sunny, beautiful beach resort. And after initially saying that the family was paying for their stay, we found out from the PMO, the Prime Minister's office, that Trudeau stayed at the resort along with his, now I guess, separated wife and his three kids at no cost. And apparently this was all cleared by the Federal Ethics Commissioner, but how much did this actually cost taxpayers? There's got to be a cost. Franco Terrazano is the Federal Director with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Franco, thanks for waking up extra early with us here on GMH. How are you? Hey, I got the coffee ready to go, and I just <laughs> want to say thanks for having me on today. You got it. So how much did this cost taxpayers? We know that Mr. Trudeau and his family didn't pay a dime to stay in Jamaica. Well, we don't have the cost totaled yet. The access to information requests are being submitted as we speak. So don't worry, folks. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation is going to get our hands on these documents. But if all of Trudeau's other vacations can tell us anything, it's that this trip is likely going to be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars of cost to the taxpayer. Okay, because the way the government policy stands now is that the prime minister only has to reimburse taxpayers for the cost of a commercial flight to the location. But that is significantly less money than, you know, flying on the actual government jet, which costs about $10,000 an hour just to keep in the air. And then you have this huge RCMP security detail. And then you even have government employees that end up either going or setting up logistics for the prime minister. So folks, before this latest Jamaica trip, if you add the three other vacations, that Trudeau took last year, one to Tofino, one to Montana to hit the slopes during Easter, and then the previous Jamaica Christmas trip, 
that bill was already close to $700,000 hit to the taxpayer. Okay, so going off of those records, this trip will clearly cost taxpayers six figures, and we might even be looking at a total bill to the taxpayer for Trudeau's vacations last year close to a million dollars. Yeah, wasn't this resort like eight or nine grand a night or something like that? 9,300 smackers a night, folks. 9,300 smackers a night. And if you added up every night that he was there, it would have been a cost of $84,000. Now, this brings us into another issue. And the issue, I think, is a lack of transparency, right? Because when Trudeau originally um, was going on vacation, his prime minister's office, his staffer, essentially implied that Trudeau would be paying his way, right? Trudeau would be staying there he'd be covering the bill. But then, of course, now we find out with a little bit of digging, I, I believe originally from the National Post, that it was a the Peter Green's family, uh, which donated in the past to the Trudeau Foundation, who essentially footed the bill. Okay, so this follows a, a, a pretty long history of the government at least misleading Canadians on who's paying for the bill or the total cost. And the reason I say that is because last year's Tofino trip Right. The government said that he'd be paying for his own stay. Well, when we got the bills back, Trudeau's Tofino vacation cost taxpayers two hundred and eighty seven thousand dollars. The Montana Easter trip, when asked how much the bill costs Canadian taxpayers, the government originally said twenty three thousand dollars. The total bill ended up being closer to two hundred and thirty thousand (laughs) dollars. Right. That's not exactly a rounding error, folks. They missed a decimal point. Yeah, exactly. They missed a decimal point. That was 10 percent of the total cost. So not only is this latest Jamaica trip likely to cost taxpayers in the hundreds of thousands of dollars once we get the photo bill, we'll let you know. But the problem is that we see a history of the government either misleading Canadians or not telling Canadians the entire truth about who's fit footing the bill and how much it's costing us. And that's the problem that I and I think many other people have beyond the cost. And uh, by the way, we're in discussion with Franco Terrazano, the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, just uh, talking about the prime minister's recent vacation to Jamaica. We shouldn't begrudge the PM or really any elected official from vacationing on the public uh, public dime because those are the rules. They're allowed to do this. The question is, should they do it at a time where no, we have a housing crisis. People are going homeless. People are struggling to put food on the table. This is another tone-deaf move by another politician. Well, I'm glad you brought that in. You know, I, I didn't lead with that because that's kind of the obvious take here, right? The fact that, like, so many people are struggling. Like, how many people had to cut back over Christmas, whether it's either just not flying across the country to visit other family members, whether it's just, you know, having more scaled down dinner with the family, maybe even trying to save a little bit of money on presents, or putting the presents on the credit card bill and now having to pay it back, right? All while the prime minister is at this extremely fancy resort, it obviously comes off as tone deaf. But here's the other thing that I just want to factor into this, right? This was essentially the fourth trip that Trudeau took vacationing last year, one to Tofino, that one cost taxpayers $287,000. The Montana Easter trip cost taxpayers almost $230,000. The previous Jamaica trip cost taxpayers $162,000. And then what we also forget is that taxpayers also pay for a mansion on Harrington Lake that's supposed to be the, the prime minister's 
cottage retreat, right? The cottage getaway. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you brought up the fact that these are the rules. Well, you know what? The prime minister has paid a handsome amount of money to change the rules, right? Because right now, as we stand, the prime minister reimburses taxpayers for a commercial flight to the location, which is significantly less money than traveling on the, govern- the, on the government jet, while many other world leaders, by the way, aren't always having to fly on the government jet, right? Last month, all over social media, you have the newly elected president of Argentina traveling commercial. Uh, you have former world, world leaders like Boris Johnson, the British, the former British prime minister who would fly commercial. Uh, you had the Mexican president that would also uh, fly among the public. And I remember also seeing pictures of other world leaders who would do the same. So I think the question here is like, how in the world should politicians think it's okay to end up going on vacation that ends up costing taxpayers squarely in the six figures? Yeah, the rules got to change, that is for sure. Franco, thanks again for waking up with us here on GMH. Have a great day. Hey, good morning, everyone. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, this seems troubling. Cases of strep throat are on the rise in Canada and the U.S. In fact, the Public Health Agency of Canada says early data indicates that invasive group A streptococcus activity in 2023 is higher compared to pre-pandemic years, particularly in children under the age of 15. And it is endemic in Canada, with 2,000 to 3,000 cases being reported annually in recent years. We're seeing big spikes in places like Alberta, B.C., Manitoba, a four-year-old girl in Winnipeg died of strep last month. Three children in Ontario have died within the last year. In the U.S., in the northern U.S. in particular, a 300 to 400% spike in strep since the start of the new year. That is absolutely wild. What's causing this? Thomas Tenkate is a professor in the School of Occupational and Public Health at Toronto Metropolitan University and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Thomas, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Yeah. Hi, Rick. Thanks very much. Why are we seeing an explosion of strep? I I think it's got a lot to do with the uh, ongoing uh, COVID, what we'd say pandemic or really now endemic uh, uh, conditions, uh, and also just uh, the rise in uh, respiratory virus infections and so so I think it because basically you know once you've got uh, this higher level of of respiratory infections occurring it uh, opens opens you up to uh, secondary infections and that's where we what we see with uh, strep throat a lot is it's, a, it's that secondary infection that comes uh, you know once your immune system is is uh, is lowered so so I think you know that's got a lot to do with it I was reading up on this over the weekend, and there's a lot of people making the suggestion that because COVID disrupted the typical cadence of seasonal illnesses like the flu, like RSV, this is why we're seeing the spike. So is that what you're alluding to? Uh, yeah, definitely that, you know, for RSV, that's the that's a key issue for, for children uh, because, you know, you've had this this group that uh, of kids that uh, that didn't get it, uh, and now you're sort of we're sort of catching up. So we're sort of doubling up or tripling up in, in terms of that uh, that cohort of kids who are, who are getting it. So so that's definitely one one aspect for for, for younger kids. Um, but uh, you know, overall, you know, we you know now that we've got sort of 
now we've got COVID as this additional respiratory infection that's that that even though like the other you know traditionally respiratory infections have a have a seasonal peak and that's what we we're seeing you know we're in that seasonal flu season uh, now um, yeah I think with COVID you know we're going to have some sort of peaks we normally have a peak around now but uh, I think it's we're also going to have a you know an ongoing level of infection uh, throughout throughout the year for, with with COVID as well. So so I think you know that's you know it's just this additional uh, risk factor that's on top of the the normal risk factors that and and so then because of that secondary infection aspect uh, that you know that's sort of driving the the high higher number of cases. Strep is a bacterial illness. Is it transmitted just like COVID and the flu? Uh, it, it, uh, yes and no. Uh, it, it's, um, it's definitely transmitted through, uh, respiratory secretions because the, the, uh, the, the bacteria is in, in your, is in the throat as well as, but it's also on your, on your skin. So it's, uh, so, and, and what it's being transmitted by, uh, people who, who are ace, what we call asymptomatic. So they don't have any symptoms themselves. They're just a, and, and they're, they're a carrier and, and you don't know if you're a carrier or not. And so you've got to, uh, so, so it's really around, uh, you know, Situations where you, you know, particularly for kids, where you, you know, close contact, uh, crowded environments, uh, and particularly if there's, uh, you know, they already have some some other underlying um, infection that that then then we get there's this they might you know their uh, immune levels are, are down and then then they get this secondary infection because of close contact with someone who is a carrier of of these of this bacteria, but but it. But the difference is also because of skin, uh, because on the skin, and particularly if there's uh, open sores and, and and secretions from those sores as well. So so it's it's a combination of uh, the uh, sort of hand contact and and contact with uh, bacteria uh, from from skin in, uh, skin lesions as well as. Uh, from, from the respiratory secretions as well. We have 90 more seconds with uh, Thomas Tenke, a professor at Toronto Metropolitan University. We're talking about strep and rising cases both in Canada and the U.S. And uh, I, I was reading that in, in this whole uh, mix, if you can, uh, uh, the uh, antibiotic amoxicillin, there's short supply in the U.S. And uh, that's apparently putting pressure on us here in Canada. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, def- definitely, you know, supplies of... Uh, of uh, antibiotics are, are really critical because this this uh, bacteria is very susceptible to treatment by uh, by antibiotics, and so so definitely any any uh, sort of shortage of antibiotics is is going to impact our ability to treat treat this uh, treat this bacteria. And so I think one one thing to sort of highlight too is there's the the invasive versus the non-invasive uh, conditions. The the strep throat that's that's pretty common is the the non-invasive type. The invasive type is the one that's that's really severe and what we've really seen the quite a spike in spiking cases. And and that's that uh, it's like up, upwards of 80% of people with the invasive type have to be hospitalized because it's quite severe. So so definitely parents and uh, you know be on the lookout for for any sore throats and fevers that are not a, not associated with uh, sort of regular regular uh, flu-type symptoms. Professor Tenkate, always appreciate your time. Thanks for waking up with us this morning. 
Thanks very much, Rick. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. By 2035, dealerships, auto dealerships in this country will only be allowed, according to the federal government right now, this might change. But as of right now, they'll only be allowed to sell EVs, zero emission vehicles, ZEVs to be exact. And so between now and then, we have some work to do when it comes to batteries, electric vehicle batteries, Um, when it comes to their lifespan, charging times, number of charging stations. And I don't have an EV, but when the battery is depleted, what are the options? And when millions of these EVs hit our roads in the years to come, is this going to be a sustainable system? Mark Winfield is the co-chair of the Sustainable Energy Initiative at York University and joins us on GMH. Mark, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Very good. Thank you. Uh, let's start with maybe the, the last point uh, I made, the sustainability of this system. We're going to have millions of these EVs and, and, you know, looking at the landscape right now doesn't seem to be feasible. Will it be in 10, 15, 20 years from now? Um, I think at this stage, that's a good question. Um, there are various dimensions to this. As you mentioned, um, charging infrastructure is going to be a factor. Um, <clears throat> where are people going to be able to charge their vehicles? Um, there are initiatives underway to expand that, but whether it'll expand fast enough, I think, is, is an open question. And then there are these larger kind of life cycle questions out there about uh, supply chains, uh, basically what goes into making the batteries, And then also this question at the end of life, um, what happens given that these things uh, do contain materials that are classified as toxic and hazardous in other ways. And basically what we found through our research was that that certainly at the back end, there were essentially no answers at all in terms of what was happening now or whether there were going to be any rules around this in North America. Tesla, by all accounts, is probably the most successful electric vehicle company. It first rolled out its its first vehicle what in two, 2003, 20 years ago, 21 years ago. What what progress has been made when it comes to EV batteries? Um, <clears throat> we've certainly been making progress in terms of battery performance. Uh, then and costs have been so performance is getting better in terms of range. And costs have been falling quite significantly as we've sort of achieved economies of scale in, in battery manufacturing. Um, that's the good news. Um, the bad news, in a sense, is that that we seem at the end of life question in North America essentially to be nowhere um, with no answers in terms of what actually happens to these things at end of life or or even who's responsible um, so we've got some distance to go there, and there are growing conversations about supply chains as well, particularly about this notion of critical minerals and its implications in places like northern Ontario. Where do depleted EV batteries go right now? Well, that that turned out to be a very good question, uh, to which uh, nobody in North America seems to have an answer. Hmm. Um, we asked... Uh, federal agencies, state agencies in the U.S., uh, provincial governments, that sort of question. We asked people in the industry as well. And essentially, nobody had an answer uh, in terms of what is actually happening. 
Um, there is no reporting framework or requirements. Uh, so there is at the moment no way to actually know where where these things are actually ending up. Uh, Stelco, a few years ago, uh, the Hamilton Steelmaker um, committed to build a North American facility to recover and recycle metals from these lithium-ion batteries. Uh, I'm not sure what the progress of that uh, project is, but it, it sounds promising. Do we need more of these to pop up? I think so. We well, uh, I think part of it too, though, is is, is part of what we found is there are just no rules at all. And what we've learned from what's happened in Europe, in part, to make those kinds of recovery and recycling operations viable, um, you need some kind of rules that that basically say this is what happens, and they have to go for. Um, some form of recycling that you can't just dispose of them. And also you have to have mechanisms to track um, what are sometimes called battery passports to sort of keep track of what's happening to these things. This is all things that are happening in the European Union. Um, but in North America, we seem basically to be absolutely nowhere. Um, British Columbia said they may do something in the next little while. California had some interesting conversations. But as it stands now, there are no rules and there are no reporting requirements, so we, we really don't know um, where these things are ending up or what happens. Do we know why there's no rules? Is it no one wants to take charge or no one wants to deal with maybe the costs of handling this? Well, I think I think this is a good question. It, it's sort of, uh, I think the generous interpretation would be an oversight um, <clears throat> that we've been so anxious to sort of uh, promote EV adoptions and to try and get manufacturers into Ontario and North America. Um, we just didn't ask the question. Um, now, this is a bit surprising because the Europeans have been on this for more than 20 years and have had a very clear set of rules. So <clears throat> one has to wonder, um, you know, uh, the manufacturers are not keen on the idea of some sort of a, a set of rules around this. Um, but there's a point at which, given particularly the amounts of public money uh, that are going to the sector, the estimates in Canada are in the range of $28.5 billion, um, and Honda's looking for more money now. Um, one would have thought we might have been asking a few more questions about these sorts of things. Very much so. And hopefully that will start to happen. Mark, appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for waking up with us. Great. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Mark Winfield is the co-chair of the Sustainable Energy Initiative at York University. He also referenced that Honda is considering uh, building a $14 billion plant for EV production in this country. Big money, but not many rules out there right now. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Second and go. Look in motion. Allen throws. It's caught to the end zone. Knox. Buffalo takes the lead. Bill scoring 14 unanswered points in the fourth quarter on NBC to win the division for the fourth year in a row. And despite being a diehards Dolphins fan, I called this back on December 18th when the Bills were two wins back of Miami for first place with three games to go. This could be the hottest of hot takes in 2023. Because the Buffalo Bills are now 8 and 6. And here is the prediction, is that Buffalo is going to win out and claim first place in the AFC East, shocking the currently 10 and 4 
Miami Dolphins. And it happened. Jay McQueen is not only CHML's weather specialist, but a diehard Bills fan as well, and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Jay, good morning. Hey, Rick. Good morning. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. You mentioned about how you you had called this uh, a couple of weeks back, and I, um, I, being a huge Bills fan, I'm also superstitious, like a, a lot superstitious about some of these things. And when the Bills were <laughs> six and six after Week Twelve back in, I believe it was late November, um, I looked at the schedule and I thought, okay. I'm being an optimist because the Bills have lost close games. They're pretty much right there. If they go on a run, which they're capable of because the their losses have been close and kind of funky, and if they get some help from the Dolphins losing to some good winning teams down the stretch, then there's a chance that this game last night is going to mean something for the division. Now, I didn't go and tweet it anywhere. I didn't want to jinx it and any of that stuff, but... Um, <laughs> Everything came to fruition except I thought the Miami Dolphins would lose to the Cowboys. They beat the Cowboys, but they lost to the Titans. And so uh-huh. there we go. Last night it set up for the division, and and the rest is history now, yeah, that, I guess. That, that Titans loss still smarts. And the Titans beat the Jags yesterday, which allowed Buffalo to officially clinch a playoff spot and Pittsburgh as well. And it's yeah. the Steelers who are going to be going to Buffalo this coming weekend. What do you think of that matchup? Well, my only uh, so we didn't play the Steelers this year. We played them last year uh, and um, handled them easily. But uh, you know, different year, of course. Um, we got whipped by them in the preseason, which was a little surprising. But then again, preseason it's it's hard to judge because the starters are only getting a couple of snaps. But I don't know those teams. They always say the teams that run the ball well and play good defense, is, and that's what you want in the uh, in the playoffs. And the Steelers uh, certainly do that. They played at a monsoon in in, uh, in Baltimore over the weekend um here so i don't know i'm not uh, i as a, <laughs> i don't ever get overly confident um i i think that if the bills play the way they're capable of they reduce their turnovers even cutting them in half um compared to what they had last night that should help them and, and go a long way on uh, next sunday i know you're a superstitious guy but there's a lot of people now saying that this this could be one of those weird years like a team like buffalo who's peaking at the right time might just go all the way. Are you allowing yourself to believe? I I am to a certain extent because uh, I know that, um, yeah, that's the thing. It's it's about getting, uh, watch football long enough to know that it's about getting hot at the right time and, you know, not peaking in October or November or whatever, right? And so if you're finding ways to win games late in the season like they have lately, um, and, uh, and yeah, they don't always look pretty. And yes, you do need help from, uh, you know, people laugh sometimes, but Coach Sean McDermott will say all three phases of the game, offense, defense, and special teams. You know, you see the Deontay Hardy uh, kick return last night for the touchdown. That's huge. Two weeks ago, he fumbled one against the Chargers, and it almost cost us the the game, right? So I, I think that they are capable. It is one of those weird years where you look at the schedule and you think, ah, this team will beat that team. And next thing you know, the exact opposite is happening, right? So all this adversity and these weird, funky losses the Bills have had, maybe this is their year. Yeah. And I, I don't want to go too far, but I, I think that it's, you gotta, as the cliche goes, take it one game at a time. And, and, you know, you see what happens, right? Super Bowl 58, February 11th in Las Vegas might just feature the Buffalo Bills. We shall see. Jay, always appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us. Go Bills.
Jay McQueen, CHML weather specialist, and as you could hear, a diehard Buffalo Bills fan. Bills hosting the Steelers Sunday. The Texans are in Cleveland. Miami travels to KC. Cowboys hosting the Packers. Rams at Detroit, and the Eagles fly to Tampa Bay. Enjoy the playoffs. They should be fun as they usually are. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.